Financial advice provided on this show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. The financial ideas and strategies discussed are only provided as a starting point for a conversation about money matters. With regard to your particular investments and financial strategies, consult your financial planner, CPA, or investment professional. All your financial decisions are yours and yours alone to make and subsequently are solely your responsibility. The information that is supplied through the context of the radio program and any repurposing of its content by the host or network is a combination and collection of solid financial investment understanding, opinion, and comments. This network, show, and its host are not liable for financial strategies, outcomes that you employ in any manner that result in any kind of loss. Shares of corporate sponsors may be the subject of buy or sell recommendations in Jay Taylor's newsletter in accordance with Jay's objective opinion. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard, it's just a lovely ride. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. This hour will help investors fix issues and achieve personal gain. Now, here's your host, Jay Taylor. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm also the author of a newsletter called Jay Taylor's Gold, Energy, and Tech Stocks. And my company, Taylor Hard Money Advisors, is in partnership with Roger Wiegand and Chen Lin. Roger Regan writes Trader Tracks, and Chen Lin publishes What is Chen Buying? What is Chen Selling? We do have a special introductory offer for all three newsletters, although each separately. You can go to miningstocks.com. That's miningstocks.com. Or call my assistant in New York. That's Queens, New York, at 718-457-1426. 718-457-1426. The best way to follow all of our newsletters and all that I'm doing, including access to this radio show, as well as uh, video interviews that I do with many different CEOs of junior mining companies uh, is to go to jtaylormedia.com. That's J-A-Y Taylor, T-A-Y-L-O-R, media.com. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for making the show economically viable. For the first hour of today's show, we have Crocodile Gold, Go West, Travali Mining Corporation, Entertopia Corporation, Smash Minerals, Ariga Gold Corp., Sand Gold Corp. and Palangio Explorations. Thank you to each of those companies for making this show economically viable. And thanks to each of you for listening to this show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. Well, this week we have a very interesting show, and I think it could be one of the most important shows that we have done since we started back in March of 2009. The Federal Reserve has come under enormous amounts of criticism over the past couple of three, four years. We have had lots of critics of the Fed on this show, starting with G. Edward Griffin back in March of 2009. Griffin wrote the book The Creature from Jekyll Island, which I think everyone should read if you want to get a sense of who owns and operates and controls the powers behind the throne in America. I think the Federal Reserve is where you start, and The Creature from Jekyll Island talks about how the Fed was created, by whom, and for what purposes. Of course, we have also had other critics of the Fed on this show. Ron Paul uh, has been on a couple of three times. Uh, We've had Adrian Salbucci, Daniel Eschland, to name just three. Uh, There have been many, many more folks on our show who have been critical of the Federal Reserve, but never have I had on this show before someone from the inside of the Fed. Never have I had a Federal Reserve economist on this show before who has been a critic of the Fed, a significant critic of the Fed, uh, as is today's main guest, one of two main guests, Professor Robert Auerbach. Professor Auerbach worked for a man I deeply admired in the past, 
uh, namely Congressman Henry Gonzalez of Texas. Well, I'm going to ask Professor Arbach about some of the claims he makes about the lies and deceptions by the Federal Reserve uh, in his book called Deception and Abuse at the Fed. And I'm going to ask him uh, about the call by Congressman Ron Paul for an audit of the Fed, as well as a bill that he sent uh, to the Fed, as well as, uh, uh, and Dennis Kucinich has his own version also of a bill to end the Federal Reserve. Does Professor Auerbach think that we should end the Federal Reserve? Well, if not, what changes should be made? Because clearly he thinks there's some deep flaws at the Federal Reserve Bank. I also want to ask uh, Dr. Auerbach what he thinks about the current economic situation and the unwillingness of banks to lend money uh, and what policies he thinks should be implemented to get the economy growing again. Our second special guest today will be Jim Lyles. He's a very astute commodity trader for whom I've gained a great deal of respect over the last number of years. Jim has been a speaker at the Wealth Protection Conference in Tempe, Arizona in the spring. Uh, this was a, a few weeks back. He spoke, as did I, and Roger Wiegan and several other noteworthy people uh, that uh, I think delivered some very good information. But Jim uh, is a superb technical analyst uh, who thinks we may be entering a major deflationary period in the near future. Jim will have some very interesting things to say about the dollar, treasuries, equities, commodities, and precious metals, I'm sure. Um, and so, uh, so while Professor Auerbach will provide some theoretical ideas, Jim Lyles will provide us with some more definitive investment ideas. Uh, in just a few minutes, I will be talking to Adrian Fleming. He is the CEO of a new company named Smash Minerals. That's a gold exploration company with a large claim area in the Yukon. And that is one of the hottest new gold exploration areas in the world. Smash Minerals may be a new company, but the management headed up by Mr. Fleming is certainly not new. Mr. Fleming has uh, been involved in many significant gold discoveries in the past, including the first significant gold discovery in modern times in the Yukon when he headed up and made a lot of money for his shareholders at Underworld Resources. That company then was sold off to Kinross uh, and it sort of goes to show you that uh, just another example of the junior mining sector and how that sector uh, is really where the big money is made uh, when you have a gold bull market like we have now. It's really that not so much in the major companies. They may provide more security, but basically they're producers of gold. The ones that find the new wealth tend to be the junior mining companies for a host of reasons uh, that uh, we will talk about and do talk about from time to time on this show. In the second hour of today's show, I will also be speaking uh, with Joe, Joe Martin. Uh, he'll follow Jim Lyles. Uh, Joe is the proprietor of the Cambridge House shows, in a, uh, and there's one coming up in Vancouver in June. Joe always has a lot to say about what's hot and what's not in the resource sector, uh, so you won't want to miss what Joe has to say, his insights into the junior mining sector, uh, the venture capital sector, if you will, in the mining industry. Uh, and there will be many more, many more, a lot of very interesting speakers that Joe will tell us about as well in uh, June, it's June 5th and 6th in Vancouver. I will be there, Roger Wiegand will be there, and a lot of other very uh, interesting people uh, and important people have things to say uh, there. Finally, to wrap up today's show, my friend and fellow investment pitch advisory board member Ted Ohashi will be with me to close out today's show. Now, before we go to the uh, to our first guest, uh, uh, Mr. Fleming, I just would like to pass on a couple of words about the markets right now. I believe that uh, this is a very, very crucial p point in time 
uh, in the markets. I am very concerned, uh, as is Jim Lyles, uh, and we'll, we'll be talking to Jim about this in the second hour of today's show. I'm very concerned uh, about the prospects for a major implosion, a deflationary implosion. Jim pointed out at Wealth Protection uh, that a very, very key level in the index is 71, the dollar index is 71.38. And I watched very closely uh, because it seemed to me to make a lot of sense. That is sort of an all-time low on the dollar index. And if we were to break that, it could mean that a lot of people would throw in the towel against the dollar and start speculating in stuff, gold, silver, just uh, commodities in general. Uh, and so I watched very carefully. Now, we came fairly close. We got down to about 72 and change, uh, very close. Uh, and then things turned around, and the dollar has been rallying. And along with that, commodities have come down hard. Gold has come down in nominal terms. Uh, and I am very, really concerned right now that we could be on the precipice of a major implosion, not unlike what happened in the Lehman Brothers situation. It could be something equally or even more severe, in my view. Uh, I think that this time it could very well come out of Europe with the uh, sovereign debt problems that keep uh, rearing their ugly heads in uh, in Europe, and uh, of course we're uh, we're seeing lots of uh, of speculation on that. Um, and so, whatever the situation, we know that debt is far greater than can be repaid. Uh, the debt cannot be repaid, and so one way or another, this is going to have to be resolved. This pathology, this economic pathology, if you will. Is going to have to be uh, is going to have to be solved now. Whether it is through the fires of hyperinflation or through some deflationary implosion, I don't know which way it's going to go. I have I have really have sort of favored the deflationary side of this for various reasons. I don't have time. We only have a couple of minutes before commercial break, and we get in to uh, speak with Adrian Fleming. But I I think that the bottom line from my point of view is that. It is bullish for gold and gold shares, especially if we have a deflation, a deflationary resolution of this problem is much more favorable for gold mining shares, in my view, than inflation. And why is that true? Well, because when you buy gold mining companies, like you, when you buy any company, you're buying for their earnings. You're buying these companies for their ability to generate profits, even if it's a company that is only planning to explore for gold and build a resource that it hopes to sell off to other companies. If the prospects for that deposit are not positive, they're not going to get that much for, their, for the sale of their, uh, of their deposits, if at all. And what the good news is on the deflationary side, and we've seen this through history, Bob Hoy has been here to talk to us about this, is that in a deflationary environment, the cost of producing gold tends to, go down, tends to decline relative to the price of gold. So I really don't care so much about what the nominal price of gold. Everybody's fixated on the nominal price for gold. What really matters is the real price for gold. And if the price, if gold goes up relative to the cost of producing it, I'm happy. And we saw this happen after Lehman Brothers. We saw the real price of gold rise dramatically. And since then, we've seen mining share profits surging. So it's all about profits. Now, if we have a hyperinflation and the cost of producing gold goes up faster than the gold price, that's not a good thing for gold mining companies. Uh, in any event, we want to own gold, the bullion. We want to start with that and silver. Also, in an inflationary environment, silver will not perform, uh, will outperform gold, I believe. But in a deflationary environment, silver will underperform gold and silver mining shares will underperform gold mining shares as well, in my view. So the view, uh, I, I think that we're in a very, very strong position for gold mining shares. Some people have asked, why have gold shares not responded to the rising gold price? 
my answer is fairly simple. I think that what we've run into is a rising cost structure, and I've just received some information I haven't had a chance to digest yet this morning from ABN Amaro on gold mining costs, and we're seeing gold mining costs surging. Uh, so uh, I think this is going to be very healthy if we get a pullback. However, you want to be cash rich so that if we get a deflationary implosion, the nominal price of gold goes down, the shares could get hit very hard. Uh, if you have some cash and you can buy those shares in, as long as the underlying uh, economics for gold mining remains strong, then having cash and being willing to wait until the market bottoms to buy gold mining shares will be a great uh, will be a great strategy, and that's what I've been telling my subscribers all along. Well, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Adrian Fleming. He is a highly successful exploration geologist who is heading up a new company named Smash Minerals. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Adrian Fleming. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. Parkerville Gold Mines, BGM on the TSX.V, is focused on the exploration and development of its gold projects in the historic Caribou Goldfields in British Columbia. Parkerville's mineral tenure now encompasses over 111,000 hectares, covering the 60-kilometer-long by 20-kilometer-wide geological belt and includes seven past-producing mines and two of Parkerville's own proposed open-pit mines, currently in the permitting process. Parkerville recently announced the acquisition of the QR mine and 900-ton-per-day QR mill. Parker Parkerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Enertopia Corporation is exploring for precious metal deposits in the western United States. The Copper Hills Project is a near-surface copper and silver oxide deposit. Historic bulk sampling has returned results of 0.8% copper and 3 ounces per ton silver. This year's work program will consist of an IP survey and a drilling program to test the near-surface copper-silver mineralization. Additional projects are under review. Enertopia trades on the OTCBB under ticker ENRT and in Canada under the symbol TOP on the CNN. SX Exchange. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. Smash Minerals is a gold exploration company in the Yukon whose management was responsible for the first significant gold discovery in the White Gold District with Underworld Resources, which was then sold to Kinross Gold in 2010. Smash holds one of the biggest claim blocks in the Yukon, and exploration has already identified three targets. Intellectual capital, combined with advanced technology, will enable Smash to be quick to drilling in August 2011. You can discover Smash Minerals on the TSX Venture under the symbol SSH. Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Voice America Business Network. 
the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love you're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me Adrian Fleming. He is the CEO of Smash Minerals. Adrian Fleming is an Australian geologist with 35 years of diversified experience in the mining industry, including exploration, project development, and operations. Exploration continues to be his passion. He has been a member of teams that made gold discoveries in Papua New Guinea, Suriname, the Nunavut, Uh, And most recently in Canada's Yukon, Adrian established Underworld Resources in 2006 that was acquired by Kinross in 2009. Uh, He is a director of Gold Minex Resources, uh, Queensland Minerals, uh, and uh, Tarsus Resource uh, Corporation. And he is also the CEO and director of Smash Minerals. That's a sponsor to the show. His successful track record and his involvement with Smash is why we are excited to have Adrian with us here today. Welcome, Adrian, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Yeah, good day. How are you today? And I'm really happy to be on the program, and thanks for having me. Well, it's really good to have you. Good day. I like to hear that because uh, it's, it brings back memories. As, oh, it gives uh, me away, doesn't it? Good day, mate. <laughs> uh, uh, good day, mate. Well, you know, we have Crocodile Gold as a sponsor, and I don't know if you heard the ad, but we just had uh, I did. Yeah. Uh, a fellow from with talking about, uh, uh, I guess, uh, Crocodile Gold. Actually, the, the name was derived because uh, right there in the town is where the, uh, where the filming took place uh, in the past, and um, the, the Crocodile uh, watering hole or whatever. Anyway, um, the first gold rush in the Yukon, uh, was the Klondike. Uh, that was, you know, then a century later, uh, along comes this discovery that you were, that you were involved with. Uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit about that discovery with Underworld? What sort, how large was the deposit? What sort of grades? Um, if you could just give us some sense of it and then maybe tell us, uh, you sold that off or that was sold off to, uh, Kinross. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about the wealth creation that took place there? Yes. Uh, with your discovery. Yes, certainly. The uh, Underworld Resources was a company that uh, I set up with a couple of my Canadian buddies in 2006. And the idea was that we were going to explore down under. Um, I was living in New Zealand at the time, and we were focusing on gold exploration in New Zealand and Australia. We listed the company here in Vancouver on the uh, TSXV early in 2007. And quite soon after we listed, uh, my colleague Rob McLeod uh, brought to my attention uh, some data, uh, soil sampling data for an area south of Dawson in the Yukon. Uh, Rob was very excited about it. He's an exploration geologist. Um, and when I saw the data, I said, Rob, this is, this is outstanding. Where the, where the hell is this? Um, 
And so he said, well, it's about 60 miles south of Dawson in the western Yukon, and I had not worked in that area before. Anyway, we looked at this information. It was grid soil sampling that had been done by a guy called Sean Ryan. And we were quite captivated by that data set. And so we started talking to Sean and his wife, Kathy. Kathy's the other half of the um, team. Uh, she's the business brains of, uh, of that group. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to forge an option uh, deal with Sean and Kathy uh, by about May of 2007. Mm-hmm. So um, our focus for Underworld became Overworld all of a sudden because <laughs> you know we'd, we'd set up to work in the Southern Hemisphere and then all of a sudden we see a really terrific opportunity in the western part of the Yukon. So you sort of change, you, you know, you just go about, tack, and uh, head off in another direction. So we did quite a bit of field work in 2007, but we didn't get to drill. So we started drilling in the summer of 2008. The first three holes were on... Uh, a prospect called Ryan's showing, uh, that bombed. Then we moved the drill down to another target called Golden Saddle. And very fortunately for us, Jay, the first two holes hit, uh, and each of those holes cut about 15 metres of 3 grams per tonne, essentially right from the surface. Mm -hmm. Uh, In 2008, we drilled about 20 holes. Nearly all of those hit, the best one being 50 metres of 3 grams. Then we came back again in 2009 with a very big program. Uh, we spent about $11 million. The best drill hole, one of the best drill holes in 2008 was 100 metres of 3 grams per tonne. And that kind mm. of really got the market's attention because, you know, 100 metres of 3 grams is a, is a mm. darn good drill hole in any language, sure. Uh, sure be Canadian or Australian. And that really, that was hole 31, that was what started this rush that we have now seen in what has become known as the White Gold District. We drilled about 60 holes in 2009, and that defined a deposit uh, of about a million and a half ounces, running close to three grams per tonne. And Mm. that's a pretty nice result after two years of drilling. So we were gearing up for a big program last year, 2010, and our buddies from Kinross came along and they said, well, we like what you've got here. We like Underworld and uh, we want to make a deal with you guys. We'd like to do an all-share deal. Uh, you've got 24 hours to make up your mind. And, and if you don't kind of say yes, well, we're just going to go and buy you on the market anyway. <laughs> so we didn't have an option. I mean, they had a gun to our head. and uh, Yeah. But, you know, a nice gun, and, uh, you know, we did very well. We haggled a little bit with the Kinross guys. Uh, This was at the Prospectors and Developers Conference in March of 2010, and they were offering us about 260 per share. And we said, listen, um, people have bought our stock at 268, so if you can just sweeten the pot a little bit, give us 268, and then we can go out to all our shareholders and say, not one person who ever bought an Underworld Resources share has lost any money. Mm Mm-hmm. And so, you know, a lot of people, we listed that company at 40 cents. A lot of people got into Underworld at, you know, 70 cents. It got as low as 15 cents. The people who bought at 15 cents, of course, were taken out at $2.68. So they were pretty happy. So, Jay, you know, everybody that was involved with Underworld made money. Um, and, you know, the principals, myself and some of my colleagues, we made a few dollars as well, which, which made us very happy. So... All of a sudden, you know, our, our favorite child in the Western Yukon was taken away from us and we're kind of casting around thinking, boy, well, we've made a few dollars, what do we do now? Mm-hmm. 
I had managed to develop a very good working relationship with uh, Sean Ryan and Kathy Wood. And prior to the Kinross takeover, we had talked about uh, doing something else in the Yukon. Um, and Sean had identified some uh, area east of where we were working with Underworld that he thought was prospective. I also thought it was prospective. Uh, there are people that have been mining placer gold in that area east of, of uh, the, the Underworld discovery for over 100 years. So once uh, the Kinross transaction was finalized, I set to with uh, Sean and Kathy, and we staked a very big claim block essentially right next door, but due east of what we had sold to Kinross. And so that has become um, Smash Minerals. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, we, st we did a very aggressive staking program last year in May and June. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's a very large area that you have staked, I guess. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about that area? And then another question I uh, would like to ask you uh, relating to your discovery uh, with Underworld is what sort of soil sample grades were you looking at? No, good. Um, let, me, let me talk about the soil geochemistry first. This okay. area south of Dawson, Jay, is a little bit unique in that it wasn't covered by the ice sheet in the last ice age. Um, if you go to Ontario or Nunavut, you know, central Canada, eastern Canada, 12,000 years ago, there was a four-kilometer-thick ice sheet sitting on everything. It scraped all the soil away, and, and so it's, it's difficult to use soil geochemistry in that part of Canada as an exploration tool. Well, the Yukon, in this part of the Yukon anyway, is different in that it was in a rain shadow. There wasn't any uh, ice sheet there. And so there's quite well-developed soil horizon in this area. And so soil geochemistry has been very successful. It led to the underworld discovery. It also led to uh, a, another discovery about, 40, about 20 miles to the south that has been made by Kamenak, uh, Kamenak mm -hmm. Gold at a property called Coffee. Um, mm -hmm. And what we're actually looking for very low values in the soil um, you know, our kind of rule of thumb is that if a sample runs better than 50 ppb gold, that's 0.05 gram per ton, mm -hmm. now 20th of a gram per ton, then you go back and have a look at that area. Mm -hmm. So the golden saddle deposit was identified by three samples, each 100 meters apart, soil samples, and they were, I think one was a couple of hundred uh, parts per billion, and the ones on either side were sort of 70 or 80. So quite subtle expression, but the background values in the soils are, you know, 5 to 10 ppb. So if you've got a five times upgrade in your soil geochemistry, then you go back and have a look at it. Mm -hmm. And uh, to what extent have you started, I'm assuming you're using some soil geochemistry in your current prospect then, and, and have you started that work yet? Yes. Uh, there was another question you asked me, which I didn't answer, which was how big is our claim block? Yes. Well, mm -hmm. it's about 40 miles from one end to the other. Um, it's mm. over 4,000 claims. It's not the biggest claim block in the gold, in the, in the white gold district, but it's one of the biggest ones. Kamenak have a very big one. Uh, the ex-underworld ground now held by Kinross is pretty big. Uh, so, you know, I'm looking at a map on my wall here, which obviously you can't see because we're on the radio. But Kamenak, uh, now Kinross, and Smash have the three biggest claim blocks in the White Gold District. Um, 
So last year, after we did the staking and we spent uh, about six hundred thousand dollars staking, we I mean we just went wild, Jay. We we got out there and we just staked like Billio. Um, we uh, following the staking went into the area and we walked along all the ridges and we did systematic soil sampling. So we collected about 7,000 soil samples and we had most of those results back by the end of September. And fortunately, um, and this was proof of concept, I guess, there were a number of places where the soil geochemistry came back above sort of the magic, if you like, 50 parts per billion gold. And so mm-hmm. pretty clearly right away we said, wow, we've got some smoke here. This is good. Um, but, of course, that was the end of the season. I had some of the – I had four of the geologists that had worked with me in Underworld go in and do a little bit of ground checking just before all the snow came in September. And so coupled using the the soil geochemistry we'd done the 7000 samples and then some field follow up we last year identified three priority areas now we're just starting our program again this year it's going to be a 4 million dollar program so we've already got some nice smoke to follow up on but we're going to be doing a lot more um, field work this year during during the uh, the Yukon summer, and my team's in the field already, and we're just just getting started last week. Okay, so it's it's a big area. Obviously, you've got a lot of work to do. When might you start? When do you, do you, are you expect to do any drilling this year? And if so, when might uh, investors start getting some results? Yes, uh, the program this year involves a lot of sampling. That will start the first week of June, um, both additional ridge sampling and then grid sampling. We're going to fly helicopter geophysics over the whole of the claim block because that helps us to map the geology. Um, we're also going to systematically sample all the streams. We'll probably get some trenching done. And, Jay, I've been a little bit cavalier with the approach here um, in that I've already booked a drill to start drilling on August 1. So, mm. you know, the whip is out. Uh, the team and, and I have a, a number of the people who worked with me on the Underworld team who are helping me out and with leading this program and doing the work. So we, uh, we fully expect to have some drill targets that will be ready to drill in August. And there's, there's one uh, component of the program this year that is a little bit different from what uh, we did with Underworld. And I don't know that that many of the companies working up there are doing this, but we're going to use uh, one of these portable XRF um, mm-hmm. units to mm-hmm. run all our soil samples. This is relatively new technology. You've probably seen them out there, Jay. They, the, the, the ones that were first developed, the portable ones, look like a great big hairdryer. Um, mm-hmm. they, they, it's a $60,000 hairdryer. Um, it has an X-ray uh, fluorescent signal. You um, hold it against a rock or against some soil. You pull the trigger, and it gives you, within a couple of seconds, an assay for a whole suite of elements. Now, it doesn't work very well for gold, but it does work very well for some of the pathfinder elements that we know in this district are associated with gold, which are mercury, tungsten, arsenic, and antimony. The newer version of this XRF technology are benchtop units. They're about three times as powerful as the handheld ones, uh, very safe to use, and they give you an instant assay. So with our wow. very extensive um, soil geochemical program, we're probably going to collect at least 15,000 samples. 
we'll, the team will be out collecting samples every day. We'll bring them back to the camp. We'll dry them for a couple of days. Then we run them on the XRF. And then, of course, we still send the samples off to the assay lab. Now, mm-hmm. you know, routinely, in the old days, if you like, or prior to the development of this new technology, you sent your samples off and you waited three weeks, four weeks for the assays to come back. So there was a big lag in getting your data. So mm-hmm. with this new portable XRF technology, of course, you're getting a real-time analysis. Now, it's not mm. quantitative, it's qualitative. The detection mm. limit uh, for these machines for gold is at about half an ounce, 15 gram per tonne. So it's a bit too high for soil geochemistry. But as I said, we know there are these other elements that occur in the soils with the gold mineralization and and the concentration of those in the soil is such that these XRF units can pick that up. It's within the detection limit of these machines. So Mm -hmm. that is going to allow me to significantly compress my program. And that's why I'm pretty confident that I can get to the point where I'll be drilling in August. So in terms of news... uh, as we get into June, uh, we will have uh, results coming back from our soil geochemistry. We'll put that out. The geophysical program, that will be done during June, so results from that in July. We're going to start drilling in August, so the latter part of August and going into September, there'll be news flow from the drilling. Okay. I, unfortunately, there's so much more to talk to you about. I'm, I'm glad to hear that we're going to have an accelerated Uh, program here in terms of information flow the way it sounds to me. Uh, We are out of time, unfortunately, for this uh, segment. We're going to have to have you back. We are due back sometime in the next few weeks. There's a lot more I want to ask you about uh, the Yukon and your program, but I think what you've given our listeners is a sense that you have a huge uh, program, that there's a, a real good chance of finding something that could be significant given your track record, given your experience, given what you've seen so far. Uh, and I, I think we're, this is one we're going to want to keep up with on a regular basis. So I, I hope you'll come back with us sometime in the near future. We'll let you tell us when you want to come back, when you have some more news, uh, and maybe before that. But we're, we're definitely, there's so much more I wanted to ask you, but we are out of time. We've got to get on to our main guest today, Professor Auerbach. So folks, uh, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Professor Auerbach, uh, who has some very important things to tell you about the Federal Reserve. Uh, don't go away. We'll be right back. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Dravali Mining Corporation is building the next mid-tier silver, lead, zinc, and copper producer in the Americas by bringing two new polymetallic mines into production over the next several months. The Half Mile Mine in New Brunswick, Canada is scheduled to come on stream this fall and will be followed by the Santander Mine in Peru, where the company is on schedule for mill commissioning by the end of this year. Exploration is active on both projects that remain open for resource expansion. Dravali trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under symbol TV. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Welcome to the human race. Some kind of love and ride. I'll be sliding down, I'll be gliding down. Try not to try too hard. It's just a love and ride. 
listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really honored to have with me Professor Robert Arbach. Professor Arbach uh, of the LBJ School of Public Affairs, uh, University of Texas, Austin, is the author of the book Deception and Abuse at the Fed, Henry B. Gonzalez Battles Alan Greenspan's Bank. Uh, Dr. Auerbach was an economist uh, with the House Banking Committee during four Federal Reserve chairmen, including Paul Volcker and Alan Greenspan. He also served as an economist in the United States Treasury Office of Domestic and Monetary Affairs during the first Reagan administration and as a financial economist with the U.S. Federal Reserve System. Dr. Auerbach has been a professor of economics at the American University in Washington, D.C., and a professor of economics and finance at the University of California, Riverside, He received two master's degrees in economics from the University of Chicago uh, and Roosevelt University and a Ph.D. in economics from the University of Chicago, where he studied studied under Milton Friedman. Uh, He has written numerous articles and two textbooks in banking and financial markets. Welcome, Professor Auerbach, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Oh, thank you very much, Jay. I I, I like being on, and uh, I I might have something today that will really be newsworthy because i just got it in the email well let's not waste any time um you would you like to share that with us right away you will be the first one to know about it and i'll probably (laughs) blog about it later in the week okay um i just got an email from the office of the inspector general of the federal reserve Mm -hmm. and uh, it's a really interesting uh email back on february 24th uh, 2010, Congressman Ron Paul uh, asked Ben Bernanke, he's the chairman of the Federal Reserve, about some things that happened, uh, and Ron Paul was reading from my book, Deception and Abuse at the Fed, mm-hmm. and Ben Bernanke got quite defensive, and he said to, he said to Ron Paul, well, Congressman, these specific allegations you've made, I think, are absolutely bizarre. Mm-hmm. And I have absolutely no knowledge of anything remotely like what you just described. Mm. Well, you know, I, I worked for both political parties. I worked 11 years for the Democrats in the House, and I worked for the Republicans the first year of the Reagan administration in the Treasury. Mm-hmm. So I'm I work with people from both parties, and I knew Ron Paul from the 70s when I first was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I was upset with what uh, Ben Bernanke said to them, and Ron Paul wrote a letter into the Federal Reserve at the time, mm-hmm. and so did uh, um, the chairman of the banking co- committee at the time, mm-hmm. uh, Barney Frank. Mm-hmm. Barney wrote a letter something like... Uh, uh, you ought to learn about your history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so here I get this today. Now, what, where do, why do you think it came today? I think it has something to do with the fact that last week, Ron Paul announced 
that he's a candidate for the presidency. So mm-hmm. millions of people will be listening to him. Mm-hmm. So suddenly the inspector general of the Fed has decided they'll investigate hmm. what uh, Ron Paul said. And hmm. they wrote me this letter, and they've given me one week to reply. And they said they called Ron Paul's office, and he directed them to call me uh, uh, concerning my book. And uh, let me just very shortly tell you what the two questions were asked. They're in the beginning of my book, and both of these, I was involved in the investigation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe they're a little old for your listeners, but I also had investigations of... uh, of Alan Greenspan all during the 1990s, but your listeners may be interested in this. The first investigation uh, was of the Watergate burglars that mm-hmm. broke into the Watergate 1972. Mm-hmm. I came to the Congress in 1976. I uh, was working for the Democrats then, and I said, how did they get that money? They were mm-hmm. arrested, and they found $6,300 bills. They were all $100 bills mm-hmm. on the Watergate burglars. Who gave them the money? Mm-hmm. And so uh, what we did, we asked the Federal Reserve. They have 12 regional banks around the country. The New York is a famous one, New York Federal Reserve Bank, to send us their board of directors minutes uh, for that period. And I, we fought with, with Arthur Burns, the head of the Fed, for about six months until he finally agreed to send them to us with all kinds. And I was assigned to read them. They were just piled high on my desk. Hmm. And I found this one, one thing which I took a picture of and put it in my book, Deception and Abuse, mm-hmm. at the Fed. The, the Washington Post had called the Philadelphia Fed. There was a rumor that the money came through the Philadelphia Fed. So both... Proxmire, at the time, the head of the Senate Banking Committee and the banking committee where I worked in the House were trying to trace the money. Who was funding these burglars? And um, Arthur Burns, the head of the Fed, said, no, we won't. We can't release it. It's, you know, <laughs> it'll interfere with the investigation. Well, anyway, I found this one page that I put in the book. Uh, there was a call made to the Philadelphia Fed, and Bob Woodward told me he thought he was the one that called Mm -hmm. about the rumor that the money had come through the Federal Reserve. Mm -hmm. And uh, they, I have in the book the minutes, I crossed out the name of the person that did it. He was an official there. I didn't want to get him in trouble. He was following Mm -hmm. Burns' orders. Mm -hmm. And he either lied or misled them, said, oh, that was uh, stolen money. No, it's not here. Well, then he turned, this is in the book, he turned to the other people and said, look, uh, the money went to the Girard Bank. So had we known that it was the Girard Bank, we could have traced, the Girard Bank in Philadelphia is now out of business, mm-hmm. we could have traced the donors. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the Federal Reserve simply refused to tell the members of Congress what they knew, so there was no tracing of that money to this day. Mm. There, was so an the federal... inc- there was a very interesting incident. Patrick Gray, the head of the Fed for a very short time in the Nixon administration, I think it was around 2003, I got the number, uh, 2003, he appeared on uh, ABC uh, and said, uh, actually he had three days to live. He had pancreatic cancer. He was mm. the old head of the Fed. He said he got the Watergate papers from the White House. 
Hmm. And I named the people that gave him the papers. Mm-hmm. And they were in the FBI. He was the head of the FBI we're in his file. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, he wanted to say this before he died. He took them all home and burned them. So we don't have any record of what... <laughs> anyway, uh, Ron Paul was asking Bernanke, do you know that this happened at the Fed, that you covered up where mm-hmm. the Watergate money came from? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then the other thing that was mentioned, I think your listeners would be very interested, um, the first Bush administration sent Saddam Hussein $5.5 billion dollars mm through a, an Italian bank, a little storefront bank in Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was marked as an agricultural loan. Now, it was mm-hmm. made in 86, but nobody ever found out about it until it was discovered by a team working for Henry Gonzalez in the mm-hmm. house. Mm-hmm. And so when I got there, I said, where was the Federal Reserve? They're supposed to examine those foreign banks. Mm-hmm. You mean... They couldn't find $5.5 billion in a bank that maybe had $100,000 in yeah. tiny little bank. So I had the head of, the head of that bank, the manager. He was the only one. Uh, he was a scapegoat. He was put in prison after this happened, hmm. even though the judge said this is a crime of the United States government. Hmm. And I had him brought to my office. He was brought in chains to the Rayburn Building in the Congress. He took off his... He took off his uh, chains and the, the guards around him and his jumpsuit, and we put him in a suit. He looked like the manager of a bank then. <laughs> he went in, and he testified and said, well, look, the Fed examiner came in. He looked at what the Georgia inspector had seen, and then we had a cup of espresso, and he left. And mm. Mr. Gonzalez <laughs> was very upset. So $5.5 billion, they put it through this little bank, and the Fed didn't know. And, and so Ron Paul said that was, which was in my book, was a faulty investigation. Mm-hmm. So here I've got this thing now, finally, and I don't think it's a coincidence. Ron Paul said he's going to run for president. It means millions of people listen to him, mm-hmm. and they're starting to investigate what he said. Well, the inspector general of the Federal Reserve is not an independent Fed, uh, inspector general. He's appointed by Bernanke. Hmm. How can he investigate Bernanke? I've had terrible trouble with him through the years I was in the Congress. They cover yeah. up everything. Mm-hmm. So th- this is a dead end, I think. So I'm trying to decide what to do, how to answer um, this. Uh, uh, her name is Gina Wang, senior attorney for the uh, Inspector General of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System. She mm-hmm. said she's just giving me to Friday to answer. My goodness! <laughs> and she what? wants to know: Is there anything I can add to what's in the book? And I, I so they're investigating the book, but more than that, they're probably trying to make Ron Paul out he didn't know what he was talking about, or something like that. Yeah, I would, I would guess. And Ron has been on this, has been a guest on this show, I think, three times or so since we started back in March. I would guess that what they're trying to do is marginalize Ron Paul and make him look like a nutcase, make him look like he doesn't know what he's talking about. And, um, but I mean, I've looked, I've read most of your book, a good part of it anyway, and you seem to be very thoroughly do- documented. I mean, you're, you're obviously. Uh, you know, you're basing what you're writing on on facts that you've gathered over time. Right. I have. I don't want to bother the readers with this, but there's over 500 endnotes, and the UT Press here 
you know, they wanted to make sure I wasn't saying anything that was false. They, they spent over a year tracing all the end notes. Right. And most of these things, I, I had experience. I was there when it occurred. Right. And, and Bernanke treated Ron Paul in the most abusive way. Oh, oh absolutely. A absolutely. And I think, though, that uh, when I look at some of the popular uh, political shows now on the major networks and I'm hearing them talk about the Republican candidates, there's, there's absolutely no mention of Ron Paul whatsoever. I think they are trying to marginalize him, as they did the last presidential campaign, put him on the end of the platform as far away from the cameras as possible, ask him as few questions as possible. And But how do we... You know, what more can Americans do? You say you don't want to bother the listeners, but I'm not sure that they're going to be bothered. I think the listeners to this show want to know the truth. I think that's why they tune in to shows that aren't mainstream. They want to know what is really going on. So I have an idea that the readers, that the listeners of this show are going to love your book. It's called Deception and Abuse at the Fed, and I'm sure you can pick it up at any, any major. I think I ordered my copy through Barnes & Noble or somebody like that. Uh, when did you publish this? Uh, 2008. It took me nine years. Uh, Henry Gonzalez died in 2000. Mm -hmm. uh, and he, he's, it's a funny thing, when I got here to the University of Texas, uh, two people sent references. Ron, uh, uh, one was uh, Henry Gonzalez, the leading liberal in the House, mm -hmm. and the other was from Milton Friedman, who was a leading conservative, my friend who I studied under, and he was so anxious anxious to read my book, but he died in 2006, oh, but I went back and forth with him, put some of the material in there. He liked what I was doing, Milton Friedman, mm -hmm. Interesting. and pe people would call him up and said, get him off of us. He's, uh, he's causing trouble in Washington, and Milton would call me up and said, keep calling. <laughs> <laughs> Keep the trouble. Keep the trouble coming. <laughs> let's let's look for truth and uh, and not what's exactly. politically convenient to the ruling class. Well, I have a great admiration for Henry Gonzalez. I'm looking at a letter that he wrote to me uh, in January 11th, 1993. And by the way, in your book, you talk about what kind of a man Henry Gonzalez was. How right. he knew everybody. He knew from the janitors on up, and he would spend time. He knew them personally, would talk to them about their families. I mean, I think it says a great deal about the man, his character, and the sort of um, uh, caring human being he was. Uh, right. and, and the fact that he would write me a letter uh, in response to a letter I wrote to him, and I don't remember what I wrote, but I have the letter in front of me that he wrote to me back in 1993. So I've always had a great deal of admiration uh, in, my, in my heart for, uh, for Henry Gonzalez. Well, so what? So you, you were right, uh, Jay. Mm -hmm. He never took a penny from anybody, and mm -hmm. if you tried to give him money, <laughs> it wouldn't be nice. Yeah, that's. I think that's very interesting, and I I, I do know uh, Congressman Paul much better than I've than I ever knew. I never spoke and never met him personally. Um, uh, your former boss, uh, Congressman Gonzalez, but Ron Paul, I have known. And one thing I think the two men do have in common is uh, uh, is is their uh, is their honesty and integrity. I think in oh, both, agree, in both yes. cases, uh, both men have stood on principle. and ha I think that makes them extremely unique in the Congress because who can't be bought right. most of the time? Now, uh, one of the uh, things... Uh, go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to tell you, I know I, he was my hero, Henry Gonzalez. Uh, 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 I, I just wanted to tell you, one time... Um, uh, the Speaker of the House, Foley, came up to us. I was standing with Henry and said, 
why don't you go out and raise money? You've got this committee with 55 members. It's got 70 now on financial mm-hmm. services. You can raise a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And Henry said, uh, why don't you talk to my economist? And he left. <laughs> he, <wouldn't, laughs> he, he didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, he never would go out and raise money for his yeah. campaigns, for anything. And uh, people think, well, he got elected because he was his Hispanic heritage. That's mm-hmm. not true. When he got elected in 61, uh, there were not too many Hispanics in El Paso. He mm-hmm. was just very good at what he did. Mm-hmm. Well, and he was, he was honest. And somehow, you know, of Congressman Paul, it's, it's been asked, how can you keep getting reelected when you vote against, you know, he'd stand on his principle and vote against farm bills when he had a farm district. And I remember one time somebody saying that Congressman Paul answered that by saying, well, if you can tell me why a taxi cab driver in New York should subsidize a farmer in Texas, I'll give you a, I'll, 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 uh, I'll vote for the, tech, for the farmer. And, you know, and he voted against it, but on principle. So, you know, I think both parties, uh, people on both sides of the aisle, admired both of these men because of their integrity. Well, uh, so what do you plan to do then? I mean, you have, and what is, the, what, is, uh, what is it that they're asking you to do with respect to this uh, by Friday? Here's what, uh, here's what they say um, in the letter. We contacted Congressman Ron Paul's office, who advised us that these allegations, that's these questions now are called allegations, mm-hmm. related to these uh, matters, uh, uh, Iraq weapon purchases were derived mm-hmm. from a book that you uh, say Watergate and Iraq weapons purchase were derived from a book that you authored related to these matters. Uh, Congressman Paul's office provi- provided us with uh, your contacts so we may seek your assistance. And then mm-hmm. they mention the two questions and say, please respond by uh, Friday the 20th. It's interesting. It was mailed out at, uh, um, on uh, last Friday at 4 o'clock in the afternoon mm-hmm. <laughs> when there's no news cycle, you know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. Well, it would seem to me, this is my guess, as for whatever it's worth, that what they'll try to do is to concoct some sort of story to, uh, to make your, your allegations or your, your evidence uh, seem unreal to the, ma- to the masses. Well, let me give your readers something that's uh, closer to the present period that I cover in the book. Mm-hmm. In 1995... We got information about the Federal Reserve's airplane fleet. Most people don't know that they had an airplane fleet. Mm -hmm. They contracted to fly over 50 planes every night delivering paper checks. Now, that has you think that ended in 2003 when they went to digital imaging, Mm -hmm. which we were always trying to get them to do. But they still got some of the airplane fleet. Anyway... We got very good information that the whole system was corrupt. Mm-hmm. So it was run out of the Boston Fed, and I went up there. I took someone from the FAA that knew all about airplanes. I took a lawyer up, and I told people to come down and talk to me. And I put a tape recorder in the middle of the table. I said, now tell me what's going on here at the airplane fleet. And this is the information we got, mm-hmm. very good information. Mm-hmm. And... uh they just wouldn't talk too much. Mm-hmm. But the people down below, some very courageous employees, said they just couldn't take it anymore. Mm-hmm. And eventually, I was, I was able to talk them into coming 
to the Congress in 1997, appearing, uh, one of the Republicans, uh, uh, Carolyn Maloney from New York, mm-hmm. a con- very good congressman, she she was really working with me, and we we got them to appear before uh, a, a Republican Congress held a hearing, and these two courageous people appeared. We also put out a report. the The airplane fleet was paying people for airplanes that didn't exist. Mm. All kinds of infractions up at Teterboro Airport near New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah, New they Jersey, had a yeah, backup plane. Mm-hmm for their airplane fleet in case one of them got went down mm-hmm. but it wasn't there <laughs> and the fed when we inquired about it the fed said well the backup is under repair hmm. <laughs> you know so what oh. good is it you know so it went on and on like that and so we wrote a stinging report and we asked two lawyers from the fed come over and see if anything we've written is wrong they could not find anything mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then Greenspan appeared in 96 at his uh, confirmation hearings, and he said, look, there's nothing going on there that's bad. It's just a matter of judgment, the missing planes, the contracts, where they tell people ahead of time who's going to get the lowest contract. Hmm. And they pay big money for this, plus the fact they were running at a big loss, Hmm. and they couldn't cover the airplanes fleet, fleet's uh, expenses. Mm-hmm. So what this did is a lot of they had, there's a few private uh, private sector uh, firms, one out of Columbus, Ohio, very good one, that also deliver checks and they're much more efficient. Mm-hmm. And it practically drove them out of business because mm-hmm. uh, the Fed was subsidizing their airplane fleet. Mm-hmm. We finally found out where they get the money from their subsidy. Mm-hmm. They took it out of the employee pension fund. Hmm. Because during the 1990s, there was a boom in the stock market, and the value of the fund went up real high. Mm-hmm. So they were able to take it out, and it's, the fund still looked like it was yeah. doing well. It was complete corruption, and Greenspan knew all about it and was giving us silly answers. We just couldn't get anywhere with that. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, there was, the, Gonzalez said, Call Janet Reno's uh, Justice Department. Mm-hmm. We got to get the FBI up there. Mm-hmm. So I called, and they they were said, "Oh, we, we don't want to touch the Federal Reserve, the most powerful bureaucracy in Washington." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, call the Inspector General over there, mm-hmm. who was appointed by Greenspan. <laughs> so I called Brent Bowen. He was a nice man. Hello, how are you? You know that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he said thank you, and I never heard from him again. Yeah. He did nothing. Yeah, and so the, I'm very reticent to cooperate with the inspector general there because I think, just as you said, they're going to do a cover up and attack Ron Paul from yeah. from raising the issue. Yeah, they'll try to they'll try to make him look like he's from outer space, uh, that he is uh, a goofy. Uh, extremist, uh, you know, right. they'll put labels on him and call him a, a right winger or that he hates blacks or something like that, which is absolutely not true. I know the man well. Uh, it's I want to say one thing to your uh, Jay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I used to work at the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Yes, I know. Yeah, at the Kansas City Fed, and I 
the people in they've you know at the time, they've got now about eighteen thousand people. They had twenty four thousand when they were doing the checks. They've got many many wonderful people in there. Mm-hmm. I worked with with Donald Cohn at the Kansas mm-hmm. City Fed. He became vice chairman. Very g- good guy. And uh, you know what he just wrote to me before he left. Mm-hmm. I found out in nineteen ninety five when the Fed was. Uh, um, Trying, we were trying to get the government was trying to get money to support the peso because they wanted to pass mm-hmm. the free trade law between Canada, uh, Mexico, Mexico, and the United States. Mm-hmm. So they held a meeting. It was chaired by a famous economist uh, from Princeton, mm-hmm. and uh, they decided that they did destroy the transcripts, mm-hmm. which they had lied about for 17 years. Mm-hmm. Till I found them. In an investigation, for 17 years, they said they had no transcripts. Mm-hmm. In 1993, I found them all right around the corner from Greenspan's office, neatly mm-hmm. typed. They mm-hmm. said they were telling us they didn't exist. But so after we found them, 1995, right in the middle of this peso thing, um, they decided to destroy the transcripts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, my friend John... Uh, my friend Don Cohn, who had been there like 40 years, he just retired to Brookings. Um, first, I wrote to Greenspan, and I said, I can't believe you're destroying these things. Well, Greenspan had Don Cohn write back to me. And what he said, and I finally put it on Huffington Post uh, mm-hmm. end of last year, what he said was, uh, we think it's legal to destroy them. Now, these hmm. are transcripts. The, the original transcripts of their meeting, which have always been sent after 30 years to the National Archives, it's, which means there is some record of what they had said. Now mm-hmm. we don't know. We only have edited records. Mm-hmm. And well, they're still doing that, destroying their transcripts. Well, uh, you know, Professor Arbach, I, I uh, knew that we weren't going to have enough time, a half an hour today. We've already encroached on the next... Uh, on the next oh, hour, I hope I hope that you can come back. I wanted to ask you a lot, uh, your, some uh, some of your views about the economy. I know I, I caught you on Bloomberg recently on Bloomberg Television. You were oh, talking thanks. about a trillion and a half dollars that's sitting in the Fed. Uh, they're right. getting yeah, and and I wanted to talk to you about policy implications. I, I hope that you can come back sometime sure. soon. There's so much more to talk to you about. I I think your voice needs to be heard, even if it's on a uh, you know, non-mainstream uh, media like this. That's the uh, only one I want to be on. <laughs> well, no, I would like to see you on Bloomberg more often. I'd like to see you on CNBC because somehow... Oh, I'd those... love to be on CNBC, but, you know, the, um, the, main, the main... I hate to say this, and I have nothing against them, but the main networks do not want to talk against the Federal Reserve. No, they don't. And I imagine there's, there's some fairly easy-to-understand reasons for that, don't you think? Oh, I, I know what they are. And we need to talk about that more. So if you'll agree to come back on me with me sometime in the near future, there's so, so much. I mean, we, you, you started out with, these, uh, with this email that you got, and that's, that, right. we could have gone on for an hour about that and related <laughs> right. topics. We could. Thanks, Jay. Your book is it. so rich. And again, folks, I want you to take a look at it. Get this book. It's called Deception and Abuse at the Federal Reserve 
by Robert Arbach. Uh, this is this is one along with uh, I would think uh, Ed Griffin's book, Creature from the Jekyll Island. There there are many other books, but this is one that you need to read. And you know I'm old enough to remember the Watergate situation. I really am, I, and it's really interesting. But more than interesting, it's it's vital and it's important because it has to do with the way policies are made today. It, it helps to under, it helps us to understand why. The rich guys are getting bailed out, and as uh, we've had um, recently, uh, Howard Davidowitz on this show talking about how 80% of Americans are getting poorer, having their living standards shrunk, and 20% are doing as well or better. This is very important stuff. So right, I want to thank right. you so much, Professor Arbach, for coming on. We'll we'll try to schedule you on as soon as possible again. Thank you very much, folks. Don't go away. We're going to be back and just after the break with Jim Lyles. He's a commodity trader. Jim will have some definite things to say about where he thinks the dollar is going. He'll have some things to say, I'm sure, about Federal Reserve policy as well. So don't go away. We'll be right back with Jim Lyles. Okay. 